You are now listening to the January 15th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Nearer to My God to Thee, the sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with Nearer My God to Thee. program Near My God to Thee. When we face hardship, we know that we must seek the Lord. However, when we actually face hardship, do we really seek the Lord? There is a big difference between knowing what to do and actually doing it. To avoid being killed, David was fleeing from King Saul. In fact, he was almost killed several times. Every time that happened, he sought the Lord. At times, when we read the Psalms he wrote, we think he praised the Lord during such times of danger. We can see how he wholeheartedly sought after the Lord. I believe he was able to seek the Lord in such times of danger because he ordinarily had an intimate relationship with the Lord. In this way, we must consistently have an intimate relationship with the Lord to naturally seek the Lord when we face hardship. The person who wrote the lyrics to this hymn had a profound and persistent, intimate relationship with the Lord. Therefore, in a tense moment, when his life was in danger, he sought the Lord and wrote a hymnal poem about seeking the Lord. Today, we'll be sharing a hymn written by Charles Wesley called Jesus, Lover of My Soul. First, let's listen to the hymn. Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly. While the nearer waters roll, while the tempest first verse of the hymn is, Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly. While the near waters roll, while the tempest still is high. When Charles Wesley was faced with a fearful situation, it seemed to him as if he was in the midst of rolling waters and a high tempest. It was at that time that he sought the Lord and asked his Savior to embrace him. What kind of situation was he in to express it as waters rolling and the tempest high? What made him ask the Lord to embrace him during that time? We'll find out through a drama. 
Along with his brother John Wesley, Charles Wesley began the Methodist Church and was oppressed by the Church of England. Starting a new revival in a church was a threat to those who dominated the existing power. Oftentimes, those threats were handled with violence, and it threatened lives. In 1740, Charles Wesley was preaching at a parish in Ireland. Even in that region, there were people who opposed the Wesley brothers' new revival. A crowd of people heard that Charles Wesley was preaching to the church members, and they were headed to that place. This is the word from James chapter 2, verse 26. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Faith must surely bear fruit. <sighs> Pastor Charles, something terrible is happening. Hurry and flee from here. A crowd is coming to harm you. Hurry and go through the window and flee to the farm. Charles Wesley, where are you? We clearly asked you to get rid of your doctrine, and yet you're still preaching here? Hurry and come out at once. <sighs> they wouldn't chase me all the way here, right? <sighs> Charles Wesley quickly hid inside a house on a large farm. Jane Moore, the wife of a farmer, saw Charles looking for a place to hide and hid him in a milk storage room. Just as Charles hid himself, the crowd that was looking for him barged into Lady Moore's house. Charles! Are you hiding here? You can't run away from us! Hurry and come out! What is the problem? Did you see the fellow who ran here? Someone said he ran towards this way. He is a very dangerous person. If we don't hurry and drive him out of this country, a terrible thing will happen. Is he such a dangerous person that you chase him with a knife? How frightening. You seem like you're running out of breath. Why don't you come in and have a drink and talk slowly? Oh, thank you. We are looking for a pastor named Charles Wesley. He made a strange doctrine in England and began teaching it. Now I came all the way here to Ireland to spread that strange doctrine. Therefore, we're trying to catch him to protect our people. The people who were looking for Charles would have immediately killed him with a knife if they found him. The fear of death came upon Charles, who heard their angry voices in the milk storage room where he was hiding. Uh, if that lady tells them I'm hiding here, they will kill me with their knife. I still have so much more to do. Will I just die like this? As Charles was shaking in fear of death, he suddenly thought of a Bible verse. It was Matthew chapter 5, verse 10 that said, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Ah, Lord, that's right. Thank you. While I was shaken in fear, you made me realize that blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Thank you. Lord, please accept me. In this place where I am trapped, I look to you. Lord, please embrace me. While he was hiding in a milk storage room near people who were trying to harm him, Charles thought of the scripture in the book of Matthew and began to pray quietly. Until the crowd that was trying to harm him left, he quietly meditated and came up with a hymn in his mind. Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly, while nearer waters roll, while the tempest still is high. Hide me, O oh my Savior, hide, till the storm of life is past, safe into the haven guide. Oh, receive my soul at last.
While the nearer waters roll, while the tempest still is high, hide me, O my Savior, hide. Till the storm of life is past, safe into the haven guide, O receive my soul at last. Matthew chapter 5 verse 10 says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This verse gave courage to Charles Wesley, who was at this time shaking in fear. It made him look to the Lord in such a situation. If he made even the smallest sound, he would have been found. If the lady who hid him changed her mind and told them where he was hiding, he would have died. In such a situation, more than looking for a way to live, he looked to the Lord. In such an urgent situation, Charles confessed his love towards the Lord and said, Jesus, lover of my soul. The hymn that he wrote would later be sung by many musicians. Among this, four different versions of the song are well known to the church members. This is how greatly this hymn became their own confession. As mentioned earlier, it is only possible to seek the Lord in such a sudden moment of danger when we ordinarily have an intimate relationship with the Lord. Just as David did, Charles Wesley also sought the Lord in a time of danger. Who do you seek in a time of danger? I hope you can look to Jesus whom we love. I'll see you next time from Near My God to Thee. Savior, I.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Bill Miter of Arizona Community Church. Today's topic is God's Unexpected Ways. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Bill. A little history. Um, around 1500 BC, I need you to go back 2,000 years. Then I need you to go back another 1500 years. So we're about 1500 years BC. Moses leads the Israelites up out of Egypt. They've been in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. He leads them up and they, they go up to the promised land. They're supposed to enter, but they don't. So God has them wander in the desert for 40 years. And then he leads them up to the plains of Moab. And Moab is where modern day Jordan is. So if you know where Israel is, then you know the Jordan River goes right down the, the center of Israel. And then on the other east of the Jordan River is modern day Jordan. But that was once called Moab. And Moses leads them up to the plains of Moab, and Moses isn't allowed to enter the promised land. There he dies, and he hands the baton off to Joshua. Okay, Joshua takes over, and he leads them into the promised land across the Jordan, and he conquers the promised land over a seven-year period. And we enter then a 400-year period known as the period of the Judges. That is the book of Judges. And here's the key. At the very end of the book of Judges, we read this verse. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. But here's where things take an interesting turn. It's during this time in Israel's history that we are introduced to an obscure Israelite woman by the name of Naomi. And Naomi is a woman who faced some unexpected and pretty extraordinary circumstances. And yet, Naomi stands as a powerful example, and trust me when I tell you this, she stands as a powerful example of how God can use those things we never see coming in ways that we could never have possibly imagined. So who was Naomi? You want to know who she was? Many scholars call her the female version of Job. So you know who Job was, right? The book of Job, uh, Esther, Job, Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Songs of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah. Job, there's a book named after this man. And it's specifically because of the suffering that he has endured. Many of us are familiar with Job. Well, there's a female version of him, and her name is Naomi. Listen, if anyone could rightly say, I didn't see that coming, it was Job. And while very few have experienced suffering on the level he did, Naomi comes close. As a matter of fact, she may have surpassed him in some ways. Not only did Naomi live in one of the most spiritually dark times in Israel's history, she experienced tragedy, personal tragedy, on a level that is, um, that is quite incredible. Now, we are introduced to Naomi and her family in the first few verses of the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. So, church, it is my honor to take us to the Word of God today. If you're online, it's my honor to take us to the Word of God today. Ruth chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 1, and we'll be in Ruth this morning. So, church, hear the Word of God. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Again, we're right about 1500 BC. And the man and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn to the country of Moab. So they're in Bethlehem and he's going to cross the Jordan and go into the plains of Moab. The name of the man was Elimelech. Elimelech. And the name of his wife was Naomi. And the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Now I'm going to stop us right there. So 
Not only did Naomi live in one of the most spiritually dark times in Israel's history, she was living in a time in which there was a famine. So let's just put that into perspective. We all kind of agree, I think, to some degree, that we're living in times where it seems like everybody's running around doing what's right in their own eyes. Can we all kind of agree on that? To some degree, I think we all would sign off on that. If you think things are bad right now, take away the food. Imagine how this country would be if there's no food. But this is the situation she finds herself in. Everyone's running around doing what's right in their own eyes, and then there is a famine forcing her to flee to a foreign country, essentially. Imagine if you and I, living in this country, experienced a famine so bad that we were forced to flee to another country. This is what Naomi was facing. But facing a family and being forced to flee from her home country was just, I'm literally just the tip of the iceberg for this woman. It's just getting started. Sometime after arriving in Moab, Naomi's husband dies, leaving her with just her two sons. And then her two sons, bless their hearts, go and marry foreign women. So if you're a Jewish woman and you have two Jewish sons, who do you want them to marry? Jewish women. But her two sons go and marry uh, Moabite women. One of the women, one of these women, her, her name was Orpah, and the other was Ruth. And that's the book of Ruth that we're in. But tragedy strikes again as both of Naomi's sons die, leaving Naomi in a foreign country without a husband with two foreign daughter-in-laws all by herself. And the story picks up in verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives, and the name of the one was Orpah, and the other, the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Kilion died. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband incredible. It's truly incredible. You can begin to see why Naomi is called the female version of Job. She is a woman that comes face to face with circumstances that are both unexpected and extraordinary all the way around. Circumstances she did not see coming. Do you want to know how bad it got for this woman? You want to know how bad it was? It was so bad that here's what happens. Orpah, her one daughter-in-law, goes back to her family. But Ruth says, I'm going to stay with you. So Ruth and Naomi go back to Bethlehem. They eventually worked their way back to Bethlehem. When they get there, everybody's excited Naomi is back. But she says, this is how bad it is. She goes, don't call me Naomi anymore. Don't call me Naomi anymore. So the two of them, that is Ruth and Naomi, went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She's back. Is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Now, real quick, I'm going to stop right there. The guys, do you know what the word Naomi means? It means sweet. Her name means sweet. We're not sure why she was named that, but her name means sweet. And this, this is where it picks up. She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? It's incredible. Naomi, having experienced all that she did, no longer wants to be called Naomi but Mara because she has experienced a ton of bitterness that she never, bitter circumstances came towards her one after another, out of left field, out of right field, things she never saw coming on a scale that most of us in this room can scarcely comprehend. 
But it's precisely here, you guys, where we learn something very significant about Naomi. And you want to know what it is? Here's what it is. Naomi knew God was at work in everything, even though she understood next to nothing. And by the way, that is exactly the same response that we see from Job. Let me prove it to you. Take, for example, the passage we just read. She doesn't want to be called Mara anymore. But look at what she says, uh, starting in verse 20. She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Listen, for Naomi, what had happened to her weren't just a bunch of random arbitrary events. Rather, she recognized, brace yourselves for what I'm about to say, folks. Brace yourselves. She recognized what we often fail to recognize, and it is this. God is at work even when the work he is doing isn't all that pleasant. We all want God to work in our lives, don't we? Of course we do. We pray for that. God, work in my life as long as it's good. Give me the good stuff, Lord. Open the heavens. Bless me. Oh, not so much over here. Limit over here, please, to when it's convenient and when it's not too difficult. Naomi, like Job, recognized that sometimes the Lord gives and sometimes the Lord takes away. And sometimes, as a matter of fact, most of the time, we won't know the reason why. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible, Job 121. And he, Job, said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. <laughs> Incredible. Incredible. Job's saying there's going to be times that the blessings from the Lord fall upon you. You bless his name and praise his name then, but you also praise his name when he takes away. And when what he's doing doesn't make any sense, and when what he is doing is actually kind of painful, we praise his name then. And we see Job doing this, and we see Naomi doing it. She says, call me bitter, but she knows that there's nothing accidental about what has happened to her. God is moving in her life. And that's significant. Why? Because there are many of you in here today that are going through things you didn't see coming. They have hit you out of left field. And you're here today going, I don't have a clue what's going on. The message to you today, you're in really good company. You're in really, really good company. Now, things get a little bit worse. They come back to Bethlehem. They're, so they're back in the, in the land. And you think things would take a turn for the better, but no, remember, both of these women are without husbands, without money, they're poor. And this forces Ruth to have to glean the fields for food. Now, if you don't know what gleaning is, it's where the poor people would walk the outer edges of the fields, and they would be looking for food that might have been left behind by those harvesting the fields. It's that bad for them. Just to eat, she's got to go out and scavenger for food. But it's during this time that Ruth found herself gleaning in the field of a man by the name of, and this is Bible test. Anybody know his name? Wow. Boaz. You guys know your Bible. You guys are awesome. Boaz. She finds herself gleaning in the field of a man by the name of Boaz. And we see this in chapter 2. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened, she just happened coincidentally to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who, oh, by the way, just happened to be of the clan 
of Elimelech. Remember that name? Elimelech. Yes. If that name sounds familiar, it's because it was Naomi's husband. And that's incredibly important. And here's why. When Boaz meets Ruth, he shows incredible kindness to her. And when Ruth reports to Naomi what has happened, Naomi immediately recognizes Boaz is part of her immediate family. And Naomi once again recognizes this is not a coincidence. God is up to something. So Ruth told her mother-in-law, Naomi, with whom she had worked and said, this man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord. The Lord's at work. This is the Lord. There's no coincidences here. None at all. Whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, this man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Now, here's the deal, guys. This is where it gets really, really interesting. Naomi, on her best day, could not have fathomed how God was going to use every little detail that she had been through to accomplish things she could have never imagined. An obscure Jewish woman living 1,200 years before the time of Christ could not fathom what God was about to do and what God was doing. So, you see that word redeemers right there. See it? A redeemer was a male relative who, according to the Jewish law, had the opportunity and the obligation to help out relatives who were in trouble or in danger or in need. Why is that important? Here's why, you guys. Here's why. Naomi could not have fathomed this, but her life was the gospel on display 1,200 years before the time of Christ before ever, 1,200 years before the time of Christ, before he ever set foot, before the Savior ever set foot on this planet, we see the gospel being played out for us in the life of Ruth and Naomi. So the Old Testament is full of what is called types and shadows. If you've ever heard this, a type or a shadow. And types and shadows serve to represent or point forward to things that are to come. So, for example, Colossians 2.17 says of the things of the Old Testament, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. I had an Old Testament professor, he said, open the Bible anywhere and it bleeds the blood of Christ. If you open the Old Testament, it bleeds the blood of Christ. If you understand types and shadows, the Old Testament is, it's two-thirds of your Bible. It's not like Christ is in just one-third of your Bible. Two-thirds of your Bible is the Old Testament. Open it anywhere, it bleeds the blood of Christ. Why? Because it's full of types and shadows, everything pointing forward to the time of Christ. When Abraham sacrificed Isaac, that was foreshadowing God one day sacrificing his own son. God telling Abraham, stop, you don't have to sacrifice your son. I was just doing that, foreshadowing what I'm going to do for you, Abraham. And now in the life of Naomi and Ruth, they come through a very difficult time and they are in the lowest place they can be. And here comes a redeemer out of left field. Here comes a redeemer they didn't see coming, providing for them in a way that they could not have imagined. Folks, that's the gospel. The gospel, that is the gospel. We are the people who, living in a fallen sinful world, have been sent a redeemer from the Lord. Boaz being their redeemer, was the gospel on display. But listen, here's where things get even more crazy. It's just getting started. Boaz and Ruth get married. <laughs> 
So Ruth was in the family. Then her husband died. Now she's back in the family. She's back in the clan again, so to speak, officially, because she marries Boaz. And Boaz and Ruth have a son, and his name is Obed. It's a pretty cool name, isn't it? And Obed has a son named Jesse. And Jesse has a son, and his son's name is Yavid, David. David, King David. The very same David who killed Goliath and went on to become Israel's greatest king, even though he was a flawed and sinful king. And you'll never guess who was a direct descendant of David. This is where you say Jesus. <laughs> I know with all these names, you're like, is it time to say Jesus yet? Because I know it's going to be in there somewhere. Yes. <laughs> Naomi could not have fathomed on her best day that not only would her, her life be the gospel on display, but from her clan would come the Savior of the world. An obscure Jewish woman, I mean, imagine her, you guys, living 1,200 years before the time of Christ, not knowing anything about this, anything that was going to happen, just going, I'm an obscure Jewish woman going through, I mean, just the worst time. I'm in a foreign country. There's been a famine. Everybody's running around crazy. I've lost my husband. I'm, I'm nobody, and I will go into eternity just a blip on the radar. Little did she know. An obscure Jewish woman, 1,200 years before the time of Christ, was going to be used by God to not only be the gospel on display, but from her, would come, from her clan would come King David. And it was because of the circumstances that she went through that Ruth married Boaz and then came David and then came Christ. By the way, Matthew, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Gospels, the first four Gospels, the, the, Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, each were written to different groups for different reasons. So, for example, Luke is writing to Gentiles, so he brings up the genealogy of Jesus in chapter 3 because it's not that important to him. But Matthew is writing to Jews. And so he starts with his genealogy. You open Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, and it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, because the Jews would want to have known that. That would have been important to a Jewish audience. Here's what's crazy. David, like Boaz, also serves as a type of Christ. He was a great king. He was Israel's greatest king, but he was a flawed and sinful king. And David's life points forward to the day that God would raise up an even better king, a perfect king, a sinless king. That, of course, being the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, folks, listen, Naomi understood that God was at work at every stage of her life, even though she didn't understand what was totally going down. But I tell you, on her best day, she could not have imagined how significant everything, every little detail that she went through was playing into God's and being used by God for his eternal purposes. Oh, by the way, oh, by the way, if you didn't make the connection yet, Boaz was an Israelite and Ruth was a Gentile. Guess where I'm going? Guess where I'm going with this? As you know, in this way, Ruth herself foreshadows God's divine plan for Jesus, not just to be savior of the Jews, but of the Gentiles. Exactly why the apostle Paul writes things like this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Thank you, Naomi. Thank you, Ruth. God was saying 1,200 years before the time of Christ, here's the gospel on display. People, Naomi and Ruth, in the most desperate situation, what happened? God provides a redeemer. And from that redeemer 
comes King David. And from King David comes Christ, who is Savior not just of the Jews, of, but also of the Gentiles on her best day in her wildest imagination. This obscure Jewish woman living 1,200 years before the time of Christ could not have imagined that she was going to be used in this way. And folks, that's significant for every one of us here today. Why? Because you are a believer. You are a child of God. And God is at work every bit as much today in every little detail of your life as he was at Esther's. Do you believe it? I hope you do. I mean it. The Lord gives, and you and I recognize when the Lord gives. We go pray. We recognize those blessings from him. But I'm here today to tell you those difficult valleys, those things you never saw coming, when they hit you and they fall in your lap, God's just as sovereign over those events as he is the blessings that come into your life. And he's going to use all of it for his eternal purposes, for your good and his glory. All things work for the good of those who have been called by God, who love God, and have been called according to his name. Ephesians chapter 1, he is working out all things according to the purposes of his will. There's nothing accidental happening in your life. I'm here today to tell you that. Do you understand that? The loss of a loved one, like Naomi, there was nothing accidental about her husband dying. There was nothing accidental about her sons dying. There was nothing accidental about the famine. There was nothing accidental about Ruth being in the field of Boaz and him being part of their clan. None of that was accidental. My favorite theologian, one of them, R.C. Sproul, I've told you this before, he says, there is not an atom in the farthest reaches of the universe that can move one inch to the right or to the left without God's sovereign permission. I always ask people, is God sovereign? Is he in control? Yes. The question is, how sovereign is your God? Folks, he is not just in control of some things some of the times, he is in control of all things at all the time. Every last little detail of your life is under his sovereign care. That is the message that we learn from the life of Naomi. At the end of the day, Naomi, the things she never saw coming. You, you know what she didn't see coming, by the way? is the same thing you and I never see coming. And you know what that is? It's not the hard things that come into our life. What we never see coming is how God uses those things for his eternal purposes. I guarantee you, Naomi's in heaven right now going, oh my gosh, I still can't believe what God did with me and my life. That is what she didn't see coming. How awesome God is. How amazing God is. That is what she did not see coming. And I pray that's the same for you and me. That as we go through trials, as difficult things come into our life, as things, come, as things come out of left field and land in our lap, that we will have the faith in that moment to say, God, you are in control, and I trust that you're going to use this for your purposes. And I may not get, it may not tell I get to heaven that I understand the full significance of what you're putting me through right now, but I trust that what I'm going through right now is serving you, serving your purposes and bringing you glory. And there, I know what most of you are doing right now. You're doing what I'm doing because I do the same thing. I'm going, God can't use me on that level. I mean, I know he's going to work out the things in my life for his glory, probably on a little small scale. How do you know? How do you know? An obscure Jewish woman living 1,200 years before the time of Christ, forced to flee to a foreign country, losing her husband and her son's could you imagine somebody walking up to Naomi and going, God's using this for his purposes? She probably would have said, I mean, I know he is, but how? That's the good news for you and me, you guys. 
God is every bit as much at work in your life as he was in Naomi's. You may have no clue what he's doing. You might be in a place right now today, you might be watching online and going, I don't know why what has just unfolded is unfolding. But know this, it is unfolding and God is going to use it. That's what God specializes in. Now let me conclude with this. Like Naomi, I said this at the beginning, we are living in a time where everyone seems to be running around doing what is right in their own eyes. Why is that significant? Here's why. As believers, we are now facing pressures we didn't necessarily see coming. I mean, even five years ago, who would have thought we'd be where we are today? Are you guys with me? And the point is, is that I can't guarantee you where we're headed. No one can. There is a good chance that more things are going to come out of left field and are going to fall in the lap of Christians and is going to fall in the lap of the church. Things we didn't see coming that are going to make potentially our lives very difficult. Now that can be scary, but we have the story. We have the historical event of Naomi to undergird us in those times. The good news for all of us is that regardless of what might be headed our way, we can have utter confidence, absolute utter confidence that God will take those things we never saw coming and use them in ways we could never have possibly imagined. Do you believe it? What if I told you that we are going to be a part of a generation that will be talked about into eternity, that you and I are part of a generation that will be talked about for eternity in heaven. They, the saints of God will be referring back to this generation. Wouldn't it be cool to go, you were a part of that generation? I was, by God's grace. By God's grace. So no matter what's coming our way, you guys, know this and believe this. Do not fear tomorrow. You stand in fear of the one who reigns above all. You put your, you fear the Lord. You trust with him. You put your trust in him and you walk with him and trust that no matter what comes your way, whether it be out of left field or right field, that God is fully in control. If you're here today, Dave alluded to it. I'm going to let us go right now. But I know that in a room the size with this many people, some of you are dealing with stuff that you didn't see coming, you would like some prayer. I want to pray for you. Dave will be up here as well. Dave, you're over here. We would love to pray for you. So if we can pray for you, awesome. But if you're online, don't fight this fight alone and know that God is working in your life and we're here for you. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we come before you. And God, we are amazed that an obscure Jewish woman living 1,200 years before the time of Christ, facing incredibly difficult circumstances, God walked with you and trusted you, even when she had no idea what was going on. And God, from her came King David, from her family, through the events of her life came King David and came ultimately Christ, the Savior of the world. God, her redemption by Boaz is an example of the gospel on display. I cannot wait, Lord Jesus, to meet her one day and to talk to her about how you used her in such a mighty way. But God, I pray that you would give us every bit the faith that we need to believe that you are at work in our lives today. I pray for anyone in this room right now, God, who is dealing with difficulties, trials, who's anybody watching online that has been hit with something out of left field that has just knocked them down. God, that today you would encourage them and uplift them, give them hope, knowing that you are a God that is at work at all times and in all ways. And in this we believe. And in your son's name we pray, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And everybody said with me, amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you right here next week. 
You are now listening to Unity in Christ, the English hour of our broadcast program. Here at Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries, we strive to aid in the spiritual maturity of our listeners. Since 2000, we have dedicated our lives to make disciples of all nations through internet broadcasting or through our CD delivery program. Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcast. All you have to do is search for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries to listen to or download this week or past week's programs. Please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. The following program is called Equipping the Saints, provided by ETS Ministry. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. You can go up a couple pages to the book of Nam. We're going to look at chapter 3, and this gives us a description of the wicked city, Nahum. We see the Lord saying to this Nineveh, this wicked city, Woe to the bloody city, completely full of lies and pillage. It's a violent, lying, wicked city. Her prey never departs. The noise of the whip, the noise of the rattling wheel, galloping horses, browning chariots... Horsemen charging, swords flashing, spears gleaming, many slain, a mass of corpses, and countless dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies, all because of the many harlotries of the harlot, the charming one, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations by her harlotries and families by her sorceries. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will lift your skirts up over your face and show the nations your nakedness and the kingdoms your disgrace. And I will throw filth on you and make you vile and set you up as a spectacle. And it will come about that all who see you will shrink away from you and say Nineveh is devastated. And the Lord God did bring this devastation upon Nineveh. They were destroyed. And now all there is is ruins there. But they were a wicked, bloody city full of lies and spiritual harlotry that influenced the nations, including Israel. Even though they hated them, they were influenced by them. Certainly the city was like their father, the devil, who was a murderer and the father of lies, right? Now in chapter 3, we looked at this last week, but the Ninevites themselves, when they actually repented, declared their own wickedness. Let's turn up a little bit to Jonah chapter 3. This is a wicked city. But I praise God for this account because it shows you that when people truly repent, they don't whitewash their sin. They say, this is how we are. It's evil. It's wrong. Jonah chapter 3, verse 4. Then Jonah began to go through the city of one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. What an amazing statement. And they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. And the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe from him and covered himself with sackcloth and sat on ashes, a symbol of humility. 
And he issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. Both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. And let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. That was their wickedness. They were a violent, wicked people. Who knows, God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we shall not perish. They understood the truth of God's anger towards them, which was the foundation for their salvation. The Ninevites were a wicked people. They were a violent people. They were the enemy of Israel. They were the epitome of worldliness. Okay, so it's clear God is commanding Jonah to go to Nineveh to proclaim against it because of their wickedness. Well, before we move to Jonah's response, let's grab a few principles from here that hopefully we can learn from. First of all, nothing passes by God, right? He says their wickedness has come up before me. No one apart from Christ will get away with any sin. Do you remember when we went through the book of Ezekiel and we looked in chapters 8 and 9 and we saw the tour that no one wants to take as God took Ezekiel on a tour of Israel's secret sins in the temple? And we hear the recorded words of those as they're doing their wicked, dark deeds. Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 12. Then he said to me, Son of man, do you see what the elders in the house of Israel are committing in the dark? Do you see this? Each man in the room of his own carved images We have children here today, but similar to issues that people get in trouble with in the computer. For they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord does not see. Notice they're committing their sin in the dark. The Lord doesn't see. Yahweh, the all-knowing, great I am, doesn't see. And isn't this what we say in our hearts when we conveniently forget God and turn to do evil in his sight? Maybe we don't say it in those exact words, but we act it out. The Lord doesn't see. But he does see. Men, he sees when you choose to defile yourselves and your marriages on the Internet. He sees that. Women, he sees when you complain and fret and worry. He sees that. All of us, he sees our sin. This is man's problem. This is mankind's problem. That we do not truly believe God is watching everything and he will hold us to account for everything. Every thought and every deed. A couple of scriptures I want to share. First Chronicles 28 verse 9, as David is exhorting his son, As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. What an exhortation. Serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches the hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Isaiah 40, verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? And the justice due me escapes notice of my God. Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. Concerning the word of the Lord, a familiar passage in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and is piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart, 
and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. God sees everything. The Ninevites' wickedness had come up before him. Ecclesiastes 12.12, in contrast to focusing on the words given by one shepherd, the word of God, he says in 12.12, but beyond this, my son, be warned, the writing of books is endless and the excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. The conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act into judgment, everything which is hidden, whether good or evil. Jeremiah 16, 17, 4, My eyes are on their ways, and they are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. Folks, God sees everything, and if you are not saved right now, you will be held accountable for everything, and your wickedness is before Him. And if you are saved, God sees everything, but praise the Lord, we can confess it and be forgiven, and it is put as far as the east as the west. But He sees everything. Non-believer, you'll be judged. Eternally, believer, we will stand before the Lord, the judgment seat. Not for condemnation, but for reward or loss of reward, because he sees everything. Are you saying in your heart the Lord doesn't see? First point I wanted to point out. Secondly, just a brief principle. We need to share the truth of where man stands before God in his sin when we share the gospel. We need to share that. We need to share where they stand. Another point I just want to point out briefly, Jonah was not called upon to learn the Ninevites' culture. Jonah, I have a five-week missionary school for you. You must learn about the Ninevites. You must learn their ways and then go to them and build a bridge so that you may share the truth. God says, get up, go, and proclaim the Word of God. Last principle I want to point out, serving more often than not. It is unpleasant and difficult. This was not an easy task that God was asking Jonah to do. It was a long journey, and he was going to people that hated him, that he most likely in sinfulness hated because he was so unlike God. This was a difficult task. Often serving is brutal, it is difficult, and sometimes we don't do it because it's hard. But we're going to see the alternative is more difficult. It is more difficult to disobey than to obey. Now one caveat here too I want to share before we move on. Jonah was told specifically who to go to and what to say. And I'm not telling us to do the exact same thing. Don't take this message and run to Portland and say, yet 40 days Portland will be overthrown. This was given to Jonah. Now God gives us insight from his word how we are to be now at this time. But it's from his word, not from our own wisdom. Okay, so we see, first of all, the clear commands to Jonah, really clear. Arise, go, and proclaim against Nineveh. Just really clear. Now, what's Jonah's response? We're going to see he exerts great effort to disobey God. Great effort to disobey. And folks, I believe we'll see in our lives that we exert great effort at times to disobey God. Where the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Verse 3, But Jonah. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, went down into it 
to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Notice, first of all, Jonah disobeys God. He rises up, same word, to flee rather than rising up to obey. But Jonah rose up. And it's kind of a shame that at least the NASB doesn't translate this arose. It's the same word used earlier where God says arise in, in a command. And here it's the same word basically. But Jonah arose. He did the first thing, but he didn't arise to obey. He arose to flee. But Jonah, he arose to flee to Tarshish. Tarshish was some 2,000 miles the opposite direction. It was on the coast of Spain, way out there, a long journey, almost as far as you could get away from Nineveh. Folks, it took great effort on Jonah's part to disobey God, and he had to plan great effort to disobey God. And notice he's ultimately fleeing from the presence of the Lord. And you see that in the beginning of three and the end of three, and we're going to look at that in a minute. But notice his great effort to disobey. He goes down to Joppa. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa and found a ship which was going to Tarshish. Jonah most likely takes off from Galilee. Remember, he was from Gath, Hepfer, 2 Kings 14. That's the Galilee region. He most likely was there at that time. And he took off from Galilee. Instead of going northeast 500 miles, he went the other direction, some 50 miles down to Joppa. Notice Jonah went down to Joppa. He went down into the ship. Jonah's going down, we're going to see. Later on we see he goes down into the depths. Jonah chapter 2, verse 6, I descended, or literally, I went down. Same word. Jonah was going down. I don't know if that's the inspired author's point, but folks, if you choose to disobey God, you're going down in discipline. And we certainly see that with Jonah. Now notice whenever you want to disobey, and we know this in our lives, there is always a convenient avenue to do so. Some have called this portion the doctrine of Satan's providence. Notice, he finds a ship going to Tarshish. Just so happens, Jonah wants to go to Tarshish, and there it is, a ship going to Tarshish. Brother and sister, Jonah's working hard to disobey God. And some of you are working hard to disobey God, and Satan's right there ready to help. There's an avenue for you to go the other way. Seems like all the time, right? It's very convenient, but as we see, it's hard work to disobey God. So Jonah pays the fare and goes on board. Middle of verse 3, paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish. Folks, we usually can accomplish what we set our minds to in the flesh, right? We usually can. Apart from God intervening and thwarting us, we can usually accomplish it. And Jonah accomplishes it. He gets on the ship going to Tarshish. How great the pain of searing loss 
The Father turns His face away As wounds which mar the Chosen One Bring many sons to glory Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice Called out among the scoffers It was my sin that held him there Until it was accomplished His dying breath has brought me life I know that it is We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.